Welcome back to the Age of Awareness podcast. This is Stephen Musket, um, one of your hosts. Uh, today we have the third part of our conversation with Professor Stephen Mulkey um, from University of Florida. Um, we cover a number of topics, everything from uh, warming in the North Atlantic and its impact on ocean currents, uh, changes in hurricane systems, uh, possible geoengineering projects and why they're popular with fossil fuel companies, uh, global agriculture and the climate crisis, and a couple other things. Um, again, this is the final part of this conversation um, from the previous two coffee chats. And also a reminder, we have two more upcoming episodes coming up, uh, one about education and AI and um, teaching for justice in education. Um, so be on the lookout for those two episodes. They should be out before the end of 2023. So, yeah, welcome. Our expectations of what qualifies as a good life are un unreasonable at this point in time. And it is still possible to have a meaningful and compassionate and decent life uh, through collaboration and cooperation and developing your communities. I mean, one of the things that's happened to us as a, as a species is we've isolated ourselves from our neighbors. I actually think evolution is, has already given us a solution to climate change. And that is the fact that we're obligate social primates. That sociality is not optional. Uh, try and get by without it. I challenge you. <laughs> it won't work. So that evolutionary programming is every, it's the flip side of our response to authority and in-group loyalty. Both of those things are part of who we are. And a way to see what the cooperative side of our nature is, is to look at the bonobo and compare it to the pygmy chimpanzee. And they're like night and day in terms yeah. of how they treat members of the in-group and out-group. And uh, it's clear that the time has come. I mean, if if tribalism is still your gig, uh, you're then you're hell-bent on destroying destroying the planet uh and this planet tribalism has no place we are not white black brown etc we are all members of the same species and it's we've absolutely got to act like it if we're going to salvage civilization yeah yeah and i think i i totally agree with all with with the news that we've had in the past but just two months it's it's becoming very clear that uh things are changing very quickly um but you 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 brought up the trend of ocean warming a few minutes ago and i i was wondering um were you saying that like the north the north the warming of the north atlantic is going to become more common or it's going to continue this is a trend that's gonna that we're going to see more of the ocean warming uh <laughs> in the gulf and in the atlantic is off the charts it is unbelievable right now the temperature of the oceans uh, are uh five degrees fahrenheit higher than they should be at this time of year 
And, you know, the Atlantic meridional overturning current is what most people refer to as the Gulf Stream, which carries warm water up to the North Atlantic. And then it's subducted as part of the conveyor belt system, the thermal haline transport system. And it goes down largely under the influence of uh, cold saline water in the North Atlantic. But the problem is that Greenland is melting like gangbusters and it's diluting the salinity of that Northern subduction. And that slows down the current. And so that's what's happening. Uh, the slowdown of the North Atlantic conveyor system. And if it slows significantly more than Europe is, is not going to receive the spinoff warmth from the Gulf Stream and uh, during the wintertime. And it's going to get uh, a lot colder and potentially much, much uh, hotter during the summer. Already, the the heat waves in Europe are astonishing. Uh, and nobody really thought that would happen. And, and what's really driving those is um, apparently the jet stream. The jet stream is splitting, and it's driving some of the warming that we're seeing in Europe and has been for the last uh, almost two decades. So the... The polar vortex has been around for a long time, uh, although it's it's only recently started to gain its its uh, notoriety. The heat dome in 2021 that hit the Pacific Northwest and Western Canada is an example of one side of uh, a stalled uh, polar vortex system. One side is hotter and drier than normal, and the other side will tend to be colder because we're bringing that cold Arctic air further south. There's been a lot of discussion as to what's driving the polar vortex, but um, and it's fun to read that stuff, but it, it really is relatively moot because it's happening, and it's happening with more frequency. So... Um, what about the ocean currents? The, the heat in the Atlantic is astonishing. The um, Colorado Hurricane Prediction Center just upped its ante for uh, North Atlantic hurricanes. There will be more of them, and they will <clears throat> almost certainly be very strong and because they that's what's been happening is we're seeing more Category 3 and Category 4 storms. The big debate in... Uh, her about cyclones is whether or not the frequency has been increasing. Carrie Emanuel at MIT has developed uh, modeling that suggests that frequency will increase. But if you look at the data uh, globally, um, the frequency has been decreasing up until in the Atlantic about 1960. And then that decrease reversed and it started to increase again. So we really don't know what's gonna happen in terms of hurricane frequency. What we do know is they're slower, they're wetter, they're stronger, and they're moving over a very hot ocean. And when they get to the coast, they um, speed up and they go further inland and carry more destructive power and flooding further inland.
So that's the reality of the storms that we're, we're facing right now. Uh, it's a really interesting time to live in Florida. <laughs> yeah, right. Absolutely. Well, I know we spoke about this last time, but I did have um, one more question for you, uh-huh. if, you ha- if you have the time. Absolutely. Um, I know uh, the, the White House has, and they haven't like officially endorsed anything, but they are, I guess, open to the study of, of quote unquote, blocking or interacting with sun's um, solar radiation to make an attempt or to, or studying an attempt to cool, to cool the planet. And so this form of geoengineering, I wanted to kind of just run that by you and, and uh, should we expect to see more and more governments around the world jumping in on projects like this? And Well, of course that's what happened in ministry of the future. Yeah. Uh, 20 to 30 million people died in India. So India said, the heck with this, we're going to block the sunlight in the stratosphere by distributing sulfate aerosols. Of course, the ultimate natural experiment for this was Mount Pinatubo and before that, El Chichon. But the Pinatubo was the one that we were able to use to refine climate modeling by including uh, water vapor correctly. And that was done by Brian Soden, who's uh, spent much of his career at the University of Miami. So, you know, the, the, thing to, the thing to say about solar interception of sunlight is that there's no way it can be uniform across the globe. You will have some patches where it is stronger than in others. And the implications of this for Uh, ecosystems, both marine and especially terrestrial, where we get most of our food, is are profound. (laughs) You don't know whether you're going to be a winner or you're going to be a loser and what it's going to do to your rainfall patterns. The one thing we know from Pinatubo is that it did affect crop production in various parts of the world, especially maize. And so, uh, you know, the scientists, the National Academy of Sciences has been calling for continued study of um, sunlight interception uh, using stratospheric aerosols. One way to improve the coverage is to go higher in the stratosphere. But the reality is we don't have any delivery system that can get us that high. So most delivery systems can only spread that stuff in the lower stratosphere where the planes fly. Balloons can take it higher, but how many balloons do you need to cover the planet? And how often do you have to put them up? And what happens if you stop for any reason? Well, the thing that's driving radiative forcing is the amount of greenhouse gas in the atmosphere right now at this point in time. And so if you stop solar interception, not only does the cooling stop, but the temperature immediately, really quickly rebounds to that driven by the radiative forcing of the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Of course, a lot of people ask me, well, why just CO2? Why don't we do these other gases as well? Well, we need to reduce our emissions of those gases absolutely to zero. Uh, especially fossil gas, which some people refer to as natural gas. I prefer to call it fossil gas because that's what it is. The reason we focus on CO2 for carbon dioxide removal 
is because that's the only known mechanism for removing a uh, greenhouse gas from the atmosphere that is universally effective. In fact, the planet Earth has been in dynamic flux with carbon dioxide for about 3 billion years. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, it, it really is the essence of the problem. And the, the real problem is not so much how powerful intrinsically CO2 is, but how long it lasts, uh, up to a thousand years. So uh, removing it is our big lever. Uh, in terms of responding to climate change. But solar uh, sunlight interception through geoengineering, I think, is incredibly dangerous. Now, the continuing study of it has been advocated by the National Academy for six or seven years now. And, you know, there's yet another study that comes out every year or so from the U.S. National Academy that says, well, we need to study this more. It's their way of saying, well, we can't give up on this because it's it's our last resort technology. Well, now it's starting to be viewed as a first resort technology by the fossil majors. They want us to do this so because it it essentially allows them to keep on pumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and to maintain their current business model. I think we need to criminalize uh, the fossil majors and the activity that they have. And we need to give them a grace period, uh, an amnesty period to uh, detool and start to send their enormous profits, which in 2022 were the largest in the history of the fossil fuel industry in absolute terms as well as relative terms. We also have <laughs> um, we also have the major banks, mainly in the United States, giving trillions of dollars to the development of fossil fuels at this late hour. What? How insane can you get? I mean, it, it really is astonishing. Um, like a last minute cash grab. Well, it, perhaps. Yeah, I guess it's. But it, it really, to, I'm sure it's that in the minds of some of these, these financiers, but uh, the reality is ju it's just a continuance of neo neoliberal capitalism. But this time it's on steroids. You know, they are going after it, uh, hook, line, and sinker, to try and maximize profits at this point in time. But they're going to take the planet down with them. You know, I just read a, a preliminary study for the city of Gainesville in which uh, a consulting firm that mainly specializes in concrete and pipes, an engineering firm, was contracted to develop part of the plan for the Gainesville region. And what's interesting is that much smaller flagship university towns like Columbia, Missouri and Moscow, Idaho, already have a climate action plan, but Gainesville still has yet to put one together. So what what they what they said was that we would we would use five degrees Celsius overall average warming as our target for planning because the trends are more pronounced. Nothing could be more stupid because anything above four degrees Celsius global average warming relative to pre-industrial 
will end global civilization. There's no way global civilization can continue in anything resembling its present form. The best estimates that I've seen is that 500 million to a billion people could exist on that planet. And that the development of northern latitudes would have to be at a breakneck pace in order to provide them with the sustenance and um, safe places to live. And so I just don't see it happening. I think if you're going to plan, build a climate action plan, you need to build one that at its high end is three degrees Celsius global average warming, because that in itself will be catastrophic for living systems all over the planet and also for crop production. A paper that was just published in Nature uh, sustainability, I believe it was, showed that uh, there's incredible control over um, uh, the production of crops if you pay attention to when you plant, where you plant, and how much you plant. Uh, there's still this overarching hammer effect of climate change that is up to 50% responsible for loss of yield. But you can mitigate that tremendously by managing how you put the crops in the ground, where you do it, how much you plant, uh, when you plant. So it it really is uh, it really is a, a very very important task to to um, undertake. We're not we're not managing global agriculture in anything like uh, an appropriate fashion. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, again, that's that's uh, another slew of of bad news coming in on on the uh, the future ripple effects we're going to feel from these um, weakening uh, wheat harvests and, and and such. Our main crops. well, you know, commodity prices are driven by markets, and so. Yeah. If do you really want your your next dinner to be controlled by a bunch of brokers? Do you really? I don't. I would I would rather it be managed by agronomists and scientists yeah. that are having some strategic approach to global food production. Do you really want to starve billions of people in the global south? Force them into migration? If, if you think you can live an insulated life here in the United States and not be affected by that, you are dreaming. Those chickens will come home to roost. And it's just, you know, either, like I said, either we collaborate and cooperate to build a better future for everybody or we're sunk. Yeah. You can't build a wall and hide behind it. You know, often when I'll give a, a public talk, somebody will always come up to me and say, hey, where can I move to? <laughs> you know, the answer is really no place. And I give the same response that Bill McKibben gives, and that is any place there is a strong community. And if you can't find one, then make one. So really the community is at the heart of this entire issue. And, you know, I... I can't emphasize it enough. The politics have divided us from one another. 
I don't even know how to get beyond that in the yeah. United States, uh, but and in the UK, and uh, but other countries like Spain don't seem to be so uh, violently divided. Yeah, we are very fractured here. That's for sure. Very, very fractured. Sorry huh? if I, I'm drifting. No, this has topics, been great. So. No, this you're you're giving you're just giving me ammo for our next conversation. Sure, no, uh, yeah, I'd be happy to talk anytime. Yeah, this has been this has been really great. Um, I need to. Uh, I need next time we talk. I need to hear more about your garden. I didn't know. I didn't know you were big into gardening. I too. I too. Well, I'm uh, not. My wife is. Oh yeah. <laughs> and yeah. she grows a lot of different kinds of plants and. Uh, the the short answer to that is become part of a community garden. Yeah, that's that's your and second secondarily become um, part of a community organization that signs up with regional and local farmers. Yeah, yeah. I actually um, there's another author from Age of Awareness, Joe Brewer, who is working on a lot of projects right now that have to do with bioregional. Uh, food systems and kind of shifting towards um, just supporting those those systems instead of you know shipping fruits and veggies from five thousand miles away. Well, I don't, <laughs> I don't, uh, I don't think that's a just a nice idea, and it reduces a carbon footprint. I think your ability to feed yourself is eventually going to depend utterly on that. You know, you're going to have to bring stuff in from outside. There's no question about that because no region has the agricultural resources to feed itself. Yeah. Uh, in its entirety, our populations are generally just too big. But um, there's the only way to move large quantities of food long distance is as a large quantity. If you're if you're gonna if you're gonna buy imported things that are coming from either another state, what you just need to minimize the distance that they go. Yeah. And it, you need to look at the, the supply chain to see how big it is. If it's a big supply chain, then individual items that you buy have a relatively small carbon footprint. Mm. It's not so much um, what you eat as um, it's not so much where it comes from. It's much more important what you eat. If okay. you're eating a lot of meat, uh, then you're you're doing a lot of damage. You know, there's just yeah. no question about it. So you know, there are lots of problems with the Eat Lancet Commission diet. Uh, it it has a lot of issues that have been discussed at length in the literature. And I encourage anybody who wants to know about it to Google Eat Lancet uh, Commission or just to go online. They have an entire website dedicated to this. And then follow forward in time the various publications that have offered uh, modifications of that diet. But the main thing it says over and over and over again is eat a whole lot less meat. Some cultures, don't have the option to do anything else but yeah. eat meat because that's the main produce in the area is yeah. goats and hogs and stuff. But the vast majority of us uh, <laughs> don't have to eat uh, feedlot cattle. Yeah. <laughs> it's just insane. It's true. 
like I said, with my students, I have to show them that we have all the tools we need. And, you know, the economic tools involve real fundamental changes in our global economies, um, such as degrowth or um, steady state economy. This requires a steady state population. But, you know, many people will mistakenly say that population growth is really what's driving all of these problems. That is categorically false. That is absolutely not true. And there are many different arguments that show that that's not true. One of the the best uh, discussions of that I've ever seen is by Climate Adam. He runs a video blog, and I recommend you Google Climate Adam and then Population and uh, watch that video that comes up because that's one of the, I assign that to my students as one of the best uh, discussions that basically shows that population really isn't at the root of our emissions. You know, we're, we're a global species, no question about it. And there are way too many of us for many reasons. Yeah. But what's driving climate change is the, uh, the resources that we use. Yeah. Yeah. So. Thank you for tuning in to this third part of this coffee chat and be on the lookout for our future episodes.